This is Stefan Partolo for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I interview Lauren Thomas Quigley. Lauren is a research scientist at IBM Research and an affiliate assistant professor at the University of Washington, Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering. She researches practical approaches for fairness and inclusion in AI, data representation, and projecting technology's impact on society and the environment. She does all of this through a lens of social justice. She earned her PhD in engineering education from Virginia Tech and is the first black woman to graduate from the program. She has led education at scale efforts in government, higher education, nonprofits, and the tech industry, many of which have focused on learning outside of the traditional classroom. A core goal of her work is to improve interdisciplinarity and intersectional pathways into STEM. Please enjoy my conversation with Lauren Thomas Quigley. How did you get into science? What was your first catalyst for getting interested in science and getting you started on your path? Yeah. Um, so my start in science, I just grew up in a household where you could be whatever you wanted to be. And I really liked animals a lot as a kid. And um, my dad worked kind of in tech, I guess, back then. And there were always like computer parts and computer things around the house. And you know, we we were the first in our extended family to have a computer in the house. So I was always playing with that. Um, but really this idea I could be whatever I wanted to be and, you know, explore the world and science was cool were really just like fundamental ideas in my house as a kid. And that's really where it started and just kind of kept going from there. So life sciences and technology and computing And then I found my way to engineering later on. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you feel like you had a specific mentor early on that guided you or was it just interest in exploring what you found fascinating? Uh, My parents, honestly, like because they just really supported this idea that I could try out anything that was interesting. Um, I have two younger sisters, so they got two scientists and an accountant. So I think they, they did pretty good on that. Um, so, um, yeah, it was mostly like, I would say my parents early on and really was instilling this idea that I could explore the world and that science was really just interesting and all around us. So I really had this like, um, very fundamental understanding of the world that was, you know, everything is science and science is everything around you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where did you do your undergrad? Um, I did my undergrad at Spelman College, so that was also a huge factor. I think if I'd gone to a bigger institution, um, I probably would have been one of those people to wander out of STEM. Um, but Spelman is a um, historically Black women's college um, in the U.S. in in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, you know, my my incoming class, I think there was like three hundred something of us, so pretty small school, about 2,000 students on campus, um, but part of a larger consortium as well of other schools nearby. So it was kind of like going to a small school in a big university space at the same time. Yeah. Why do you think you would have probably wandered out of STEM if you went somewhere bigger? Or what was it about the smaller or community-oriented college that was useful for you or helpful? Um, I mean, it really was this idea of community um, and it it was less about competition. So 
Um, and also I found out that math was really hard in college. Um, it wasn't hard in high school, <laughs> um, but in college, it, you know, things got kind of hard. I thought I was going to be um, a chemistry major. And then I thought I was going to be a math major and calculus was not fun <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, and I found my way to physics, which is not actually like, you know, the typical path that people take to get into physics. Like most people don't wander into it as their last resort in STEM, but for me, it kind of happened that way. Um, but I also had a lot of, you know, support around like, you know, with classmates, faculty were always super available. Um, I was able to get involved in research as a first year student, which was also really cool because um, for me, I needed to actually see the science for it to make sense for me. For me. Um, and, and that was, you know, I think what drew me into physics that I could see the science and I could see the math um, more so than maybe some of the other disciplines. Did you feel like you had a sense that you were able to work on and understand the applied, some of the more applied problems? Or was it more of a, like an understanding of the foundational basics? Uh, for me, it was the applied problems. Um, and, and really this idea that everything is super connected was really interesting for me just like kind of when you're thinking more about like the theoretical side of physics that everything is super connected but the applied piece really is what um what got me in and again like being able to see the math made more sense than just doing math for the sake of math mm -hmm. um which was really helpful so i had to i actually took my prerequisite math classes <clears throat> with my um, physics classes at the same time, because they it made it it made both disciplines make sense for me and both subjects make more sense to me. So um, and that was like another benefit of being at the institution where I was, where I could have this conversation with my academic advisor and say, hey, this is what's working for me. Um, can I do these classes at the same time? And and that really helped, um, especially because I did not, you know, coming in, especially early on in my college years, I did not realize how um, how how much math could be like departed from something mm. real and tangible. So having that real and tangible thing happening in physics and then the math part happening in the math classes really was helpful for me. Mm. I realized maybe this is difficult. With, with hindsight you tell a different story but like looking back now do you did you get a sense of like social issues emerging as something that you would be interested in for example justice or gender issues in the field or is that something which came later um but maybe looking back you can tell that story so I think they kind of happened at the same time for me so I you know also grew up in a household where you know I was very aware of what was happening in the world around me um, and, you know, I think really empowered to think about the implications of the world and, and also like that we are all socially connected. So my decisions on, you know, on my street, on my block actually do have an impact on other people and, um, and and we all are interconnected that way too. So like this very social communal um, idea was always a part of growing up and um, also going to Spelman. I, um, you know, we had this summer reading list. So, 
you know, I'm reading over the summer coming in, um, you know, Bell Hooks and Patricia Hill Collins and Black Feminist Theorists. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is interesting stuff. Um, but I also, at the time, you know, I was excited to explore this space, um, you know, and think about the social sciences. Because I guess, you know, when you're in high school and, and middle school, social sciences are not really like social sciences. It's just like history. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and, you know, it also is pretty boring, right? Like you have like this very, you know, normative version of American history and then a little bit of like, you know, global history, which is deeply imperialist and all this other stuff. And um, it just like, for me, it wasn't super applicable to like my life. Um, but here I was like reading all these interesting social scientists and getting exposed to sociology and gender and women's studies. Um, and we have a core first year course um, called African Diaspora in the World. So really thinking about also the history of Black people in the world outside of American slavery, which is also a newer thing for, it was a newer thing for me to actually read and study about. Like I always knew that there was more to Black history than than just slavery. And yet I didn't have as many opportunities to study and read that, um, you know, just because it, it's not part of the core curriculum. Um, so. I was really enjoying this opportunity to study these things, um, you know, coming in in my first year. Um, I even did like most of a religion minor um, because I thought it was interesting. Um, <laughs> so I was having fun playing in the social sciences on the other side of campus and then grinding it out in the physics, well, in, in the physics department and in the science building um, the rest of the time. And I I knew that I was holding these things in my mind and like the way that I thought about the world together. Um, and I had a really interesting quantum class, actually. Um, the professor that I took for quantum mechanics actually spent a good amount of time teaching us like the history of physics as well as quantum mm. and talking about like some of these social implications. So we learned a whole lot about, you know, um, Einstein teaching folks in the community and from Princeton, like he, yeah, he's hot on campus, but he was also teaching folks that, you know, live nearby about some of the fundamental ideas of physics, which is really important. And um, my research, um, I had one research project that was like fluid dynamics and I was in the lab by myself, which was pretty boring, I guess. And, um, but I later had a different project where we were looking at um, middle school students and how they learn Newtonian mechanics and the social aspects of that were super present. Um, you know, I was not a person who took physics in K-12, um, you know, formally other than like, you know, physical science. And, you know, looking back on it, I know all of the social things that, in, you know, all of the social systems that inform who gets to be even a um, physics major or a STEM major. And if I, you know, for me, like I kind of, I knew all of these um, system level issues around education and, you know, how race and socioeconomic status and all these other things were entangled in who got to be in STEM. And 
were, you know, entangled in my own experiences too. Um, so like I was thinking about these things and was not sure at the moment how to make them unite um, in a in a career path. Um, another thing that I did in college was I um, volunteered a lot doing STEM outreach. And I thought it was just like, you know, a cool, important thing to do. Um, and that also grew into really thinking about issues of social justice in context of STEM. And again, like who gets to be in STEM? So coming, coming at this from the experience of a Black woman raised in America, going to historically Black college, being a physics major and an engineering major and doing this outreach stuff, there were all of these pieces that were, you know, tied together in my experiences. And what I tried, what I ended up doing later on, um, you know, maybe I spent less time thinking about all of those connections, but it was always like a fond memory of like, oh yes, I got to think about all of these important, you know, social theories and stuff like that. Um, and I think for me, when I was in grad school, kind of confronting some of the challenges um, that I was experiencing, it it all made a whole lot more sense. Um, like, you know, understanding how, you know, how I'm viewed in, in the STEM field, how um, systems work together. I don't know if I'm really answering the question, but I think like for me, they were always there together and I ended up making it make more sense. And it was much more applied as I was, you know, progressing through my training. And then it's become really center in my work professionally. One thing I worry about with undergrad and below education, even in, in graduate education, is that we don't really empower students and grad students to really be agents of change in the communities that they're a part of or that we're a part of, and that we at best give them a good foundational knowledge of science. Um, and if it's really good, then they understand some of the problems in there. But I don't really know that we we're good at providing the capacities that students and grad students need to enter into scientific communities and to really thrive in them, to be confident in them, to understand power relations that are there, and to really, yeah, understand that they can actually be an important lever in them. And I'm wondering if you felt that as well, or you felt like you kind of understood your role from, from early on. I, I think I understood my role early on, but I also like all early on saw how I could use STEM to actually be a change agent. Like, you know, I wanted to be able to early on change who got to be in STEM. I wanted to early on think about these systems about around the impacts of STEM so that, you know, the the lived experiences of folks that I knew were going to be better. Um, you know, I think that like by understanding like the sociopolitical standing of different groups, um, specifically in the US, but globally, understanding that and understanding the power that STEM broadly has at the same time are not super common experiences and perspectives because 
you know, I, I did a PhD in engineering education. Like there, there's a lot of thinking about like, how do you better train engineers? And a lot of times that means a lot of time spent in the hard sciences, in the physical sciences, in engineering, in labs, and you don't have time, quote unquote, to think about those other things. You don't have literally the capacity in the curriculum for space for it. Um, something I always thought was really interesting is, um, you know, any university that has an ABET accredited engineering program requires an ethics course and they require like a basic history course. But the courses that qualify for those are very narrow. Philosophy 101 or 100 was not actually going to help me think about the social implications of STEM, but that's the required, that's like the only, one of the only classes that meets that requirement when it comes to accreditation or having American history up until, you know, 1900 doesn't really help me understand the historical context of technology um, but that's one of the classes that meets that requirement, whereas like some of the other more um, complex or social science spaces where you could explore some of these things, they just are not like the courses that are required. So um, I think that there's, and then there's also just the, the challenges in STEM disciplines broadly that we're really disciplinary egocentrics, right? Like you know, we're the smartest people in the room, therefore, you know, humanities and social science, that doesn't matter. And and that's really problematic. But we've been able to see, you know, over many, many years how that's just not the case. But um, the culture in STEM, you know, perpetuates this way of thinking that discounts other kinds of knowledge. And that's the problem, I think, that we really run into where, Yes, you can be an awesome scientist and engineer and not have any idea or perspective on how that science and technology is going to impact people. And that's a real, real problem. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it was easier for you to understand some of those connections because you had a sort of multidisciplinary training? I mean, you went from physics and then then I believe you moved into engineering, right? Yeah. Um, so like jumping between these communities, did that make you think, ah, oh, you know, maybe some of these, there's different sides to the coin here. There's different perspectives. Um, was that helpful? Yeah. I mean, I think it like the things that like, you know, for me, when I was like even building my schedules, I would, you know, pack up all of my required classes and then have this fun intellectual space to play in, whether it was like a religion class or it was women and gender studies or whatever it was. Um, and even though that I, you know, kind of looked at those as like my easy A's, um, they were super important to my thinking, um, throughout. And I think that, um, you know, that's an important feature when I work with students now, a lot of times, like I'll see their schedules and they're like, just simply doing all of the, the STEM courses, which is fine, but it's just not enough. And if you're not able to build in these perspectives in the things that you have to do as a student, it just kind of, it won't happen until later. So, you know, there's a lot of people that I run into that are like, oh, you know, uh, you know, great student in undergrad and grad school or whatever in, in this STEM discipline. And now thinking about these other things. So yeah, it would it be nice if we could, 
think about them at the same time. It makes me think, do we need more generalist type of thinking in STEM fields? So I feel like particularly these are very, like you said, you know, you go down a path and become a very specialist in, in one thing, but there is also a lack of seeing connections in that path. And that people who come at it from a more generalist perspective have a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary type of training, that they might approach what innovation is from a different perspective, or they might see the linking, like linking things which already exist as a factor in innovation or seeing implications um, of certain projects in different fields or sectors, for example. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, though, most of us, you know, even, you know, whether you, you finish up at the undergraduate level or you get a master's or even a PhD, a lot of times what you're doing is real general. Um, most of us are not, you know, doing, you know, a, you know, theoretical physics research or, you know, doing, you know, developing quantum computing. Most of us are not really doing that, right? Yeah, there are people that do that and that is great. Um, but a lot of what you end up doing professionally is a little bit more general. Um, and and that's a, you know, that's important. And people need to be well versed to do that well. So I think it would be more beneficial for people to have more interdisciplinary training because yes, the depth matters, but it doesn't always matter as much as the breadth. So what did you focus your PhD on? Um, so I was interested in identity and interested in this idea of who got to join these really niche fields. I did a master's degree in optical engineering, and I honestly had not really heard much about optical engineering until I was like a junior in college. And that was just because one of the faculty that I took classes from he did research in optics and I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, speed of light experiments. Yay. Lasers. Cool. Um, and and in not having a specifically detailed plan of what I was going to do when I grew up and also graduating in an economic crisis, um, I went to grad school <laughs> and I was able to go to an optical engineering program, which was really interesting and. Um, you know, and I was able to develop and deepen a lot of my engineering skills, but I also did not want to be in the lab, um, you know, just building semiconductors or, you know, doing fiber optics experiments. Interesting, but just not what I wanted to do long term. But I thought it was interesting and because it's a small-ish field um, and, and definitely an interdisciplinary field among physics electrical engineering, um, material science, other disciplines as well. Um, I was like, how do you get here, right? Um, and in the US, there's like probably, I think at the time around 10 places that you could get a degree that said optical engineering. And and also the, that the year I started my PhD, the Nobel prize was in optics. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is cool. I wanna figure out how do people get here? And I'm really interested in this idea of, of researching identity because who we actually are um, and how we become who we are is an experience and in I would almost say a practical experiment of identity building. So um, I looked at how do people, you know, get into this very niche, specialized, interdisciplinary field. And I did that by interviewing a bunch of graduate students across the country who were in 
graduate programs in optical engineering. And both through those interviews and looking at their trajectories, um, I also was applying this theory called identity trajectory um, that brought together three concepts around our identities, the intellectual experiences that we have, the institutions that we're a part of and the roles that we play in those institutions and the networks that we're a part of are all the things that influence how we get to do what it is that we do. Um, and, and I was able to apply this theory in the context of STEM, which was, you know, one for a theoretical frame that was not super broadly used. A lot of people in engineering education were starting to think about identity um, but this particular framework hadn't been used in STEM disciplines yet. So um, that was what I studied, what I focused on. And some of it was like also reflective because I was interested in like, how the heck do people even get to a field like engineering education? Like no one's ever heard of that, <laughs> you know? And at the time there were only two um, PhD programs in the US. So, you know, I was reflecting on like how, not only how did I get here, um, to this place. And then like, also, what the heck am I going to do when I get out of here? Because no one really knew what we were going to do when we graduated. Um, there are people, you know, there are a few, there are a handful of people that graduated from another institution by the time I started. My program hadn't gra graduated anyone. And, you know, it was a little bit of an experiment of, well, let's see what happens. What are they going to be able to do when they're out of here? Um, you know, and and I was interested in thinking about like these emerging disciplines, identity, and how do people arrive in these spaces, and then what do they end up doing? So, I think I've always been an identity researcher at heart, and that was like the first like, here is what I'm you know studying. That's really fascinating. It reminds me of this term in sustainability science, probably elsewhere, just positionality. So, I mean, you're studying how people got to where they are, the persons they were, their background, and how they got into a field. And so positionality is kind of how we understand that and how then that influences the research questions that we focus on, where we work, who we work with, how we work, and how that, yeah, you as a person have a lot of potential biases, but also histories and benefits and backgrounds and networks and stuff, and that how that shapes everything about our research and that it can't be fully objective because we have to consider that those factors. And did you think also about that aspect of it? So how it shaped the questions that people focused on and then what they found interesting and then what was kind of viewed as valid knowledge that they created? Yeah. So when, and it's funny, like, cause um, in the last couple of years in engineering education, everyone like just discovered positionality. So everyone's like going crazy about like, I need to talk about my positionality, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in my paper, in my research, um, you know, and like also just kind of emblematic of how, again, like a lot of times engineers are, can be very disciplinary, egocentric in not paying attention to what other people are doing. I think I had this underlying idea because, again, I had all of these like women, gender studies, black femme theory experiences where it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, like axes of oppression and like, you know, your sociopolitical standing makes a difference. And I was, again, like thinking about these things, but they weren't super salient. I didn't name them always. But um, there was one thing that was really specific that I um, did learn that I've really attached to 
over the years is like your epistemological stance. So like, you know, when I was in my PhD program, that was the big deal, right? Everybody's like, your epistemology matters. And like, you have to identify your worldview and make sure that your, um, you know, your theory aligns with your methods and aligns with your analysis. And like, if you're not epistemologically consistent throughout your study, then your study is, you know, not rigorous research. Um, And, you know, and also like in a time and space where the standards of what what good qualitative research was, was really um, important for, for my field. So I was like really, you know, having fun thinking through these things. And maybe I didn't call them positionality at the time. Um, but, you know, I definitely wrote a reflection after I interviewed 25 graduate students and you know, I was explaining why I thought it was interesting that I had way more women that were willing to be in my study than men, even though this particular field was very underrepresented for women. Um, and and also like some of the things that came out in my interviews with the women participants in my study was really interesting. And I, you know, I, you know, kind of talked through some of that in my in my dissertation study um at the end because like you know reflection at the end important (laughs) but um you know I think that you know like again for me it was always there because I was thinking about these things all at the same time and and just like knowing that the reasons why I wanted to study what I was studying um the way that I thought about the power that STEM has is was entirely because of my positionality and you know, now, you know, everyone is talking about it, even, you know, in computing and and other disciplines that I engage in, um, you know, we're, we're a lot more present and clear about who we are, has an influence on what we choose to study and how we choose to do it. So it is identity too. Mm. I'm interested in following up on what you said before about this depth versus breadth approach uh or way of thinking like where do you see the the real benefits of having like a a breadth approach so someone who's more generalist thinking widely across the you know wide range of problems potential methods and theories you know probably epistemic plural as well like epistemic pluralism where you kind of you're in one world but then you you can you can understand other word other approaches um where do you see that in in your experience as being beneficial I think if you want your work to be applicable to people in any way, you have to have a greater depth. I mean, I'm sorry, a greater breadth. Um, because if you're not, you know, like in the tech industry, now we call it user research, right? And everyone's like, oh, yes, I took a user research course, but I'm just going to develop my techie thing, right? Um, but I think that if you want people to be able to benefit from what you're doing or be or what you're working on to be applicable in some way you have to have a little bit of breath to draw from whether that is in a particular problem space so like you know i think i've like for me i've had a healthy respect and care for environment and like aware that environmental injustices happen through experiences and like just kind of again understanding how the world works 
Um, and, you know, I've been able to like meander my way over there through my own research, focusing on data because, because I care about the applicability of the problem. I care about the problem space and, you know, learning all the people in that space and what do environmental researchers actually do. Um, so I think it's, you have to have this um, commitment to ensuring that the the technical or the scientific work that you do um, becomes applicable by engaging, you know, even if it's just like through interdisciplinary collaborations, like no one's saying go get like 25 PhDs and then you can like solve all the world's problems. You have to be able to, you know, like read outside of your discipline, think about the world and in the ways that other people think about it um, for your work to be meaningful. So after your PhD, where was your first position and where did you go next? And maybe that leads into what we're, what you're doing now. It kind of does. And it kind of doesn't. Um, <laughs> I meandered a lot. So um, I, and I actually started working before I finished my PhD. Um, I first was doing like a government contract role, but in STEM education and helping to manage a federal STEM education portfolio of like $60 million. And it started out as an assist assistantship on campus because I was not having fun uh, teaching first year engineering students in like a really tough environment. <laughs> um, so I was like, I need another assistantship. Let me find something. And I was able to work on that grant. And then I switched over um, to being a contractor um, full time. And then um, I did that for like a year. And that was a lot of fun because I was also like, again, thinking about these system level um, problems and challenges. So I was really able to bring in some of the things that I knew well from engineering education, like building out a STEM mentoring program or helping to develop um, program criteria that would diversify the students that um, the high school students that were doing apprenticeships in 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 research labs. So I was really able to kind of bring together these system level questions and apply them um, in a programmatic way that's durable. And that was like kind of like one of the things that I learned, um, you know, as a grad student and then kept building on um, in other ways. Um, and then from there, I went to work at a university in a professional staff role, re leading a program that was focused on um, diversifying the number of uh, STEM undergraduates from that institution who went on to get a PhD or an MD PhD. Um, so it was really building off of the um, the Meyerhoff Scholars Program at University of Maryland at Baltimore County, um, which was founded by um, Freeman Robowski. And when I think about like this idea of thinking about social justice in STEM, he's like the perfect prototype. Um, you know, he grew up during the civil rights movement, was really active as a as a young person in thinking about these social justice civil rights issues. And he's a scientist. And, um, you know, when I think about like how you can hold these two things together, he's really like one of the one of the role models that I think a lot about, um, because not only was he focused on ensuring that 
you know, underrepresented Black, Brown, um, Indigenous students were getting to college, but also that they were getting these research experiences and that they were thinking about the social implications of their work, and they could go on to get a PhD in the sciences to deliver on those um, those STEM social justice kinds of goals, um, and just you know wildly successful. So the the program I worked on was was modeled after that, and um, you know I I got to work with twenty four amazing young people, many of whom are still in the sciences, many of whom now have their PhDs or their medical degrees. And um, that was an awesome experience, but also a super challenging one in that I was working in a system to, in a lot of ways, disrupt a system and didn't necessarily, excuse me, have the power to disrupt the systems in the way that I needed to. So that uh, did not end well, but it ended. And um, I ended up um, going to um, going across the country and working with um, two of the most, I, I think, um, two of the most important folks in engineering education on a grant thinking about reflection. So um, and that was a um, amazingly restorative time for me, both like as a researcher and an academic. Um, because I was like, I was getting beat up a lot um, in finishing grad school and, you know, trying to change systems without any power. (laughs) And um, it was really restorative for me, but also um, a chance to really, you know, really flex these programs, program management and development skills to build endure, you know, enduring and stable systems that can scale um, in STEM but also, again, thinking about these social science kinds of questions and issues. So like thinking about reflection in engineering and STEM education and why reflection can help us retain our STEM graduates, help um, you know students move from the community college level to a four-year institution um, in STEM. And, and again, like I get these system level questions that integrate um, STEM social science and social justice at the same time. So I did a whole bunch of different things in a short period of time that still kind of like are, I would say, themes for my my work. Yeah, wow. Uh, I'm interested in like, where do you think it is now? Like, where are we today with, with making progress on those issues? And what are your perspective on like what would be needed to better address social justice issues in STEM? Oh, man, that's a tough one, right? Um, I don't think we've made a lot of progress. It's really, um, you know, sad. One of the things that I um, did when I was in that um, professional staff role is I was always paying attention to the NSF uh, data on STEM graduates. And there are specific tables that, um, like, literally every two years, they report out who's getting... STEM degrees, what disciplines, race, sex, disability, you know, all of these things. And the numbers haven't changed for like really like 30 years, um, which is unfortunate. Um, you have little bumps here and there, but then you have declines. Um, and then I think that 
we have so much direct inner interface and and use and experience with technology that does not um what's the right way to say it? i guess that is not attentive to the social implications that that are um, born out of using or engaging with different technologies and part of that is because like of who's developing technology um, and how technology is um, how technology is developed and what as a I would say a field what we think about people right we don't think that people are um we don't we don't offer agency to technology users in the general sense and that's a problem and i think a lot of that is because of this lack of consideration of social justice concerns and issues and also this still very narrow set of people that get to develop technologies Mm, so. yeah. yeah, well, let's let's <laughs> maybe there's another journey in the middle, but maybe we could say what you're what you're working on now at uh, at IBM and what are some of the the you know the problems that you focus on and, and the questions that you have that you're you're interested in. Yeah, um, so I'm a part of our responsible and inclusive technology team, and we focus on like three core areas, like one, how do we change the research and development process so that we can actually think about the social um, implications of, of what we are doing? And um, how do we mitigate um, problems that we know can arise with technology, particularly in how those technologies impact um, different people um, and different groups? And then also, what are, what are right ways to develop socio-technical solutions. So I focus on that latter part um, in, in our tech for justice work. And my research is really focused on the use of data um, for questions and concerns of social justice. Um, so one of my projects is really focused on how do we empower people and communities to be able to report and understand their environmental exposures um, you know, environment is impacts all of us, and we may not necessarily, you know, have ways to talk about or indicate that something is going awry. Like being able to say, "My kid had three asthma attacks this week," is actually important data for us to understand what's happening in environment. Um, and and that is, you know. A negative consequence, of course, um, when people are saying, you know, have have a health incident or some other kind of incident to report, but there's not there's not necessarily a generalized way for one people to report those incidents and also kind of understand what's happening around them very well. So um, I'm working on this environmental justice mapping piece, and then another project I'm working on is how do how can we use open data to support community and individual agency in workforce participation. So, you know, it's nice to know what the unemployment rate is in the country, but that's not super applicable um, for an individual in any way. So how can we provide people with the data tools that support their agency, whether that is 
you know, negotiating a salary or um, thinking about where in the country they might move if, you know, that means a better economic opportunity. Um, so, but I'm really, I'm really focused on these questions of using data, um, like I said, for social justice questions. Yeah, I think one thing which would be interesting for, for folks to hear is what are some of the the benefits and maybe downsides of working in industry versus academia and what was where do you see that I mean, having kind of been in both uh, areas before um maybe there's some specific to your to tech and, and and data for example but for those who are maybe thinking of of choosing a career path in the early career stage where do you think some of the benefits and challenges might be yeah i think you know i get i definitely um Think there are pros and cons on both sides um and i always like try to keep a, a toe in academia <laughs> um so um you know on the on the pro side of working in, in the tech industry you um you know there's a little bit of flexibility to be able to change roles change teams and try different kinds of work or different areas of work um and also a lot of what, what we're doing is a lot more applied um there are, you know, similar kinds of goals and interests in publishing and doing all of those things. Um, but also, you know, there's, I think, you know, we've, we've mentioned power a couple different times in different ways, but, um, you know, there's, you know, we live in a tech lash right now um, where people are suspicious of industry um, and, and tech companies. And one that's, warranted we have to respect that and um and that that can be a challenge so um you know we're we're always thinking about you know not not just our own individual positionality but thinking about the business positionality <laughs> um, what does that mean for people um what does that mean for folks who are you know living their daily lives or participating in the workforce and all these other things so i think like it can there are some some sometimes limitations on the reach that you can have on industry in industry um depending on what your goals and intentions are um but there's also these huge opportunities for scale so um i always uh, mention to my academic partners you know when i i worked at a different company and um taught a course on machine learning and i instantly had you know half a million students <laughs> And it takes like a whole career to have a half a million students, um, you know, in academia. So like the opportunity for scale is huge. And that's something that's always um, drawn me in on the industry side. On the academic side, you know, academic freedom is super important and the flexibility to kind of be able to do what you think is best and right with um, a lot less um, scrutiny or purview is is. Um, is compelling. Um, also, there's a little, there can be less suspicion if you're doing work that's community engaged. Um, but, you know, there's also like reasonable suspicion because universities um, have reputations too. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there there can be some opportunities to have that more direct impact, um, you know, in academia. You know, my my example of being able to teach a half a million students like kind of instantly um, is 
also not the same as, you know, sitting in your office with a student and, you know, working through a tough problem or, you know, like some of the students that I worked with in the past where it's like, you know, I, I have like little bits and pieces of things from them all over the place. Like one student who, you know, he was like, Dr. Lauren, I really want to go to Japan on an internship. So, you know, I call my buddy who has, you know, done a bunch of research in Japan, like, hey, can you take my student? And he's like, yeah, let's make it happen. And, you know, so like that, you know, there's meaningful, deep impact that you can have in those um, smaller scale environments too. So there's lots of pros and cons, but like, I, I really have enjoyed doing both. Yeah, that's super interesting. No, I, I agree. There, there is a value to the deep learning and the deep engagement really, and also the, the satisfaction and kind of seeing the impact play out with single students if you work with them for a long time. What do you think, I mean, these projects that you have are really fascinating on on uh, our environmental reporting and this link to health. Like, I don't know if, if you wanna share any specific projects, but where do you think, like going forward, where would you see like opportunities for, for tech and, and data and social justice to come together and, and solve some other problems? If you had to like apply them to new projects or if you had, if you're dreaming of you know ways or which you could really come together where would uh you would like to focus your efforts that's a hard question and it's like there's so many different um spaces and and areas to think about um i really think that you know climate and environmental justice are really 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 urgent questions that um that are social justice questions because we know that climate change and environmental exposures are raced, they're gendered, and the impacts are disparate. Um, you know, we have we have all of the the knowledge around you know who gets impacted, how and when, and to what extent. And I and I really believe that that's like a the ur the most urgent area for all of STEM disciplines to really think about because the impacts are broad. Um, you know, they are they are the health impacts, they are, um, you know, there are socio-political impacts, there are social impacts that impact, that, um, that affect all of us. And um, I think that that's like, for me, like the general space around environment and environmental justice are, are are my my most interesting areas right now um like i'm constantly reading different things i have um oh i don't know where i put it um but this book that just came out when the street lights come on is talking about environmental justice in a very practical um sense and and um and i'm really enjoying that that's not just like you know thinking about this space but how can we address that address these concerns with with the full um, assets that we have in, in STEM. So I think that if I had to pick a general area, that would be my area, but I think there's a lot of questions that we have yet to define in that space to even be begin to answer and address. So I think that might be my, my top area right now. Interesting. I think one of these challenges we, have, we see in environmental governance literature is you know, top down, bottom up, or polycentric uh, communities self-organized and 
there's lots of actors within that making decisions and there's a lot of discussion about regulating tech and you know from the top down from governments for example but what is your perspective on on the sector you know from within like do how are the how is it self-governing how are people organizing themselves to focus on important problems and to have like in those internal either internal within companies or between uh um in the sector like do you do you get the impression that it's changing from within or it's more needs to push from the outside i think it's a little of both um you know I, th I think it's a little of both, but I think a lot of it is um, kind of back to this idea of positionality that some people are bringing specific lived experiences um, as relevant to the table to justify why um, this technology solution or approach is important or problematic or how to change it so that we can um, get to the the um, the outcomes that we need. So I think it's a little of of both. I think, unfortunately, capitalism capitalism interferes with our ability to to really fully think about and and focus on the most important problems. Because in a system of capitalism, the most important thing is making more money, um, and and at, at any expense. Um, but I think that. A lot of many of us have this interest and commitment around doing the right thing, doing the best thing that we can um, and being accountable. So I think there is but I also think that there is a place and space for, you know, external governance. I think that there's a place and space for accountability. There's a place and space where activists and community have to say this is and make these make demands of this is what we need. So um, I think it's it has to there has to be some communal approach to achieving the kinds of outcomes that we all want and need for society. Thanks, Lauren. This is really super fascinating. Like many things to think about on my morning jog or wherever I get some free time away from the kids. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes or resources on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. The In Common Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. 